0: Good morning, everybody. Can you open your Bibles, if you've got a Bible or a phone with a Bible on it, can you open your Bibles to the book of Romans? And we're going to be looking at one verse in particular in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. And so what we want to see today is I want, to, I want you to understand the gospel in a certain way, and I want you to know that there are only two religions in the world, one by divine grace and the other by human achievement. And as we come to this text in Romans chapter 5, we come to what one theologian, he calls it um, the continental divide of theology. And so if you can imagine the whole vast continent of North America, just a huge continent, and imagine that um, on, on one side stands the east coast and one side stands the west coast and you've got the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean on each side running down the middle is is this huge range of mountains I think it's the Rocky Mountains and if you can just imagine for one minute at the tip of this mountain in the middle of this vast continent you have a single drop of rain falls just to one side of the peak and it falls down and goes all the way out to the Atlantic Ocean and another drop of rain that falls just a little bit to the side of the peak will fall down all the other side and head out to the Pacific Ocean and the two destinations are completely different from each other and so and the the last thing to remember as well is that when water starts to pour down either one of these sides it it just it just it's going a certain direction its course is fixed and it's in place and so when we come to this text this morning this text this single verse in Romans chapter 5 functions as a as a continental divide of theology and how you determine it is going to set you on one of those two courses. So you're either going to be on one side, that's going to be a works-based system of salvation, or you're going to be heading down the other side to understanding the gospel that's based on God's grace. And so, um, that, I mean, and that's why I want you to know that this single verse is such a potent Bible verse. It is just, it's a monumental text in the scriptures, and how we determine it depends on which one of those two directions we're traveling and so we want to know what it, what it teaches, what, what's at stake here as we look at this. And as we do look at it, you're going you're gonna to see that it's, it's to do with the fall. And so you're going to think the Garden of Eden. It's to do with how we understand what happened at the fall and how sin went from one man and spread to all men. And so if you can open your Bibles and look, we're going to look at Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Nearly read from chapter 6. It would set us off on the wrong side of the mountain already, eh? 5 verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as through one man, that's important, through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And if you jump down, you might see a little dash in your Bible there. It's because he interrupts his thought. And if you jump down to verse 18, he continues in the same line of thought. He picks up again, and he says, So then, as through one transgression, that's through one sin, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And so those are the verses that we're going to look at this morning. And to do that, we're going to I want to give you an outline so you can know where we're going. There's going to be four points this morning and they're all going to be focused on the subject of original sin, and so that's how we're going to... That's the doctrine that we talk about what happened in the fall. We talk about the doctrine of original sin, and so the first point we're going to see, we're going to see the doctrine of original sin. The second point will be the depth of original sin. The third point will be the dilemma of original sin, and the last point there that we're going to look at is going to be the deliverance from original sin. And so that's the four points that we're going to look at this morning so the first one is the doctrine like what 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 is it how do, how do we understand this this concept of original sin and so the doctrine of original sin as i've said it concerns the fall it's when adam and eve were in the garden and god said don't eat from the apple and he plunged mankind into sin but we want to understand what what exactly happened there and so we're going to see in this text several elements that start to build this this doctrine and, and put it together And so our text starts by saying that through one man. And so what's important to note is that everything that flows, everything else we're going to see from it, that the effects of the fall are going to come through one man. Um, And so in verse 12, we see that sin entered the world. So through this one man, sin entered into the world. We also see that because of sin, death enters the world. And specifically our text here, it says that death spread to all men. So through one man... Sin came in, and what's the wages of sin? Death, and then death enters the world, and and it spreads to all men. And so in verse 18, we see that through one transgression, which is through one sin, there resulted in condemnation to all men. And so condemnation is the guilt. So everyone, through this one man's action, guilt enters into the world, and all of mankind is guilty and in verse 19, we see that through one man's disobedience, it says the many were made sinners. And so it doesn't say that many people started doing individual acts of sin. It says many people were made sinners. And, it, and as, as we're going to see it, it tends towards seeing that we were made sinners by nature. There's, there's a change and a corruption to our humanity that came through the fall. So those are the observations from this text that we're going to use to start building this doctrine and understanding it. And so we see clearly laid out in the scriptures that because of the singular sinful action of a single man, sin, death, condemnation, and a sinful nature spread to all of mankind. So if, if you take that, that, that what I've just said is the doctrine of original sin. That's what Christians have believed for, for centuries, but against it, and may, maybe you're thinking this way in your mind as well. Against it, there's, there's some common objections to this doctrine. And, you know, these are, these are good questions to ask. They're fair questions to ask. It, when, when we start to look at it, it, it's tough to understand this doctrine. So here's two objections. How can I be held guilty for something that I didn't do? Do you understand that? You feel it, eh? How can we be held guilty? Adam sinned, but I've been given condemnation. How is that fair? That just seems so ridiculous. Second one is, how can I be held guilty for sinning when I've been given a sinful nature? I can't, you've made me like this and I'm sinning and how can I be held guilty for it? So those are the objections that lodge in people's mind and they say, I will not accept the biblical doctrine of original sin. It makes no sense and it's not fair. And it's because of these types of questions, a man by the name of James Montgomery Boyce he says this, he wrote this, Is there anything harder for the natural person to accept than this doctrine? And it is, isn't it? That is a hard truth to accept. How can it possibly, how can it be that we are guilty because what somebody else did? And as so often is the case, we have the biblical position on one side, and we've got all the reasoning, the arguments, and the logic of human thinking on the other side. And in the 5th century, it was these very reasons, these very complaints that raised what we call, and you might remember what's called the Pelagian Controversy. And in taking these arguments, there's a man called Pelagius. He argued that there is, this is his argument, he argued that there is no such thing as original sin, that every man is born in a neutral state like Adam was before the fall, that man is not guilty of Adam's sin, so there's no passed on condemnation, And and so man could only be held accountable for his own sins, the own sins that he did. And in opposition to mankind having a sinful nature, he believed that mankind had, and, and just notice what this, this is a heretic, notice what his way of thinking was. He believed that mankind had a free will. And so it's having an independent free will that formed the basis of of Pelagius' thinking, and out of that idea, which is so common today, and that's what we're going to talk about, that resulted in all his error. So that's what we're going to see unfolded today in a bit more detail. And so and that is why I've titled the message this morning, I've called it The Forgotten Fall, because it's the doctrine of original sin that really has been so badly forgotten and neglected in our day. R.C. Sproul makes a comment, and he says, Pelagianism that's that way of thinking. Plagianism has a death grip on the modern church. And it really does. It is a common way of thinking. And so he's right. But I tell you what, I still haven't answered those objections, have I? Those objections, how can I be held guilty for something I haven't done? How can I be held guilty for sinning when I've been given a sinful nature? And this is where the text in front of us is just bursting with divine truth. So... It explains two key Christian ideas. How do we biblically understand something that seems so unfair to us? And so if you look at verse 12 again, it says, Through one man, sin entered the world. And in the Bible, I want you to know this about Adam. In the Bible, Adam is not just any other human being. He's what's called a federal or a representative head. So what he does represented the entirety of mankind that came from him. Every single person descended from Adam, and he represents everyone. And so if you imagine in a rugby game, if you have your whole team of players, 15 players on the field, and one of your players commits a penalty, does only that individual player get penalised? Whole team gets penalised. And we accept it, eh? We we know that that, that, in that setup in a rugby game, one player gets penalised, whole team's penalised. And we go, I understand federal headship, I understand representative headship, but in a government, if a president declares war, the whole country is at war. That one decision speaks for all the people in the country. And so in the case of Adam, if Adam is condemned, we are all condemned. And if Adam is given a sinful nature, we're all given a sinful nature. And in the Bible, that's how God sets up the story of redemption, that Adam represented every man that came from him. So that, that's federal headship or a representative headship, and what he does, what, what that one Adam does, was imputed to everybody else. So I want you to keep that idea in your mind. His, what he did was imputed, like we were counted as if we had done the very same thing. And that, that's the answer that the Bible gives to those objections that we raised. His sin, guilt, and corrupt nature is imputed to all of man. And I just want to put in brackets there with Christ accepted. So he is born, uh, not not born in Adam's sin with a sinful nature, but every other man is born in Adam. And so the idea of free will is so tempting to use as a tool to answer those objections. How can we be held guilty for something somebody else did? But to put it simply, it's, it's just not the answer that the Bible gives for answering these hard questions. And so the idea of free will, I'm going to argue this morning, stands on the wrong side of the continental divide of theology and the doctrine of original sin, that we've been accounted guilty and born with a sinful nature, that doctrine of original sin stands in contrast and on the side that leads to understanding that we're saved by grace. And, and right now, I, I, you may not be satisfied with the answer that, that I've put forward. It may still be hard to understand. But that's only one point. We've still got three more points in the sermon to go. <laughs> and so the second point, the second point is I want you to understand the depth of original sin. And this is where I think a lot of people start dropping off. We want to know how deep does this doctrine go? How, how does original sin really affect us? And when we finish at this point, I want you to feel our sinful nature. I want you to understand how deep does original sin go. And so we're going to look closer at it. And so this is the biblical picture, and I'm just want to i going to put a lot of different scriptures in front of you, and I do that because I want you to see the Word of God speaking, that we have a natural idea and tendency um, that has certain ideas and ways we think, but I want to point you back to the, the Word of God and how it answers these tough questions. So this is the biblical picture. Psalm 51 verse 5 teaches that our sinful nature, it begins at conception, which in light of our government's um, decisions, recently we see in the Bible that life, people are held guilty from conception, so there must be some sense of person at conception. But behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. This is David speaking after his sin. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And that, that's always been understood as being sinful from conception. Some people would argue that um, perhaps David was an illegitimate child, and he's speaking, in sin did my mother conceive me. But that's not the way to understand it. Psalm 58 verse 3 says almost the identical truth, and so it it reinforces this interpretation. It says, The wicked go astray from the womb. They err from their birth, speaking lies. And if you're looking for the Bible to explicitly say that we have a sinful nature, and, and we have just that in Ephesians 2 verse 3, where it says, We were by nature children of wrath. And then it says, Like the rest of mankind. Which, which implicates all of mankind with a sinful nature. And as well as explicit statements, the Bible also gives us illustrations. It pictures what a sinful nature is. And if you consider Jeremiah 13 verse 23, this is a powerful little l- illustration. It says, "Can imagine an Ethiopian, so they have dark skin. Just they're born with dark skin. They can't help it. It's, it's in their nature. It says, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. And so it speaks. It's a picture of the sinfulness of human nature that you can't change it. A leopard can't just change his mind one day and decide to lose his spots. It's an inbuilt quality. And that's what I'm trying to get at when I use the word nature. And so scripture is clear. Mankind is born with a sinful nature, But we can't stop there. We we want to know exactly what's wrong with us and we want to know how deep original sin goes. And so I want you to look with me at um, Mark chapter 7. If you turn to Mark chapter 7 verse 21. And I want you to know this is the words of Jesus who who is no fool. And he says, Mark chapter 7 verse 21, for from within, out of what does it say? Out of the heart, out of the heart of men proceed, not even just wrong, it says evil thoughts. Out of our heart comes evil. This is a strong word. Out of our heart proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things, can you see that the heart of man, and this is before you come to Christ, before you're saved, the heart of an unregenerate person says all these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. That's Jesus's understanding of the nature of sinful man. And so we've seen that we have a sinful nature, but we need to get more specific and we want to we go to the next layer down. So we see that the problem is now with our heart. And it's from our heart that, that all this evil desires proceed. And if you look in Genesis 6, 5, another scripture you know well, it says, Then the Lord saw, this is after the fall and mankind began to increase on the earth, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And you know, Martin Luther, he translated that verse himself and his way of reading it is that the thoughts of his hearts were only evil all the time. And, and it's it's a grim picture. That's, that's the heart of unregenerate and unbelieving man. So we've seen that we have a sinful nature and we've seen that we have a sinful heart. And, and I think you know that much already. I don't think I've taught you anything new, but I, I want you to go down to another deeper level and I want you to I want you to know this as well. The next level down. I want you to know that our will is corrupt. We aren't trying to get our head around if we have a free will, and I want you to know that our very will is corrupt and polluted. And so, if you're trying to hang on to that notion of free will, I just, I, I really would ask you to just think carefully with me as we, as we look at it. And I want you to think, how is it that we actually make a decision? Like, if you, if you firstly think of Think of every decision we make as a choice. Uh, We choose between two things, don't we? Two or more things. And so we come to an intersection in the road and we've got a choice before us. I could choose, I could choose, I could turn around, I I could just stay still. We've got decisions in front of us. But I want you to think about what is it that makes us choose something? What is it that causes us to choose one thing and not the other thing? How does a human being work? And so this is where one of the greatest American theologians is is very helpful for us. And he observed that the will is not free. And what he said was, we do have a will, but it's connected to something. It's not just randomly generating decisions. There's something that influences and biases our will. It It pushes us in a certain way so that we choose a certain thing. And so what he says is, And to quote him, he says, volition, which is a word of making a choice, volition is necessarily connected with the influence of motives. And you know what motives are, eh? We have, like, you stand before a court, they don't want to know if you killed someone. They want to know if you had the motive to kill someone. Does that make sense? It could have been a complete accident and you had no intention. But if your motive was to harm or to kill, that's where guilt comes from. And so our motives are involved. And the Bible speaks this way. This is the language of the Bible. It speaks of the motives of, motives of the heart, the desires of the heart. And that's what our hearts do. You want to understand the human heart. It desires things. It wants things. It, it craves things. And, and I, want you to, I want you to understand it this way. Our heart, it wills things. Does that make sense? Our heart is where that will, that drive, that desire comes from. And so one of the most profound observations that Edwards made, and I quote him again, he says, the will is always and in every individual act necessarily determined by the strongest motive. So, so what that means, if we put all that together, it means that our heart is the cause of every decision that we make. He's saying that the reason we choose one thing over another is because we prefer one thing over another. We love one thing more than something else. And so what we love the most is always what we do. So our heart is connected necessarily with our actions, every choice, everything we do. And you see this in the Bible, you know, in John three sixteen, God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And then what happens in the, in the next verse, or just shortly afterwards, that, that there were some that didn't accept the gospel. And what was the reason given? Because they loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. There was a greater love for darkness than for the light. And that's what held them captive. They had a greater love for sin. They couldn't overcome their sinful heart. And so our will is not free. We do have a will, but it's tied to our heart. There's an inseparable connection. So if you could remember everything about your will and all this complicated things perhaps understand that our will is just bound to our heart they work together they're inseparable our will and our heart are bound together and i want you to just i just want you to remind me how does the bible our will is joined to our heart how does the bible describe the condition of our hearts is it good is it is it, are our hearts free are they neutral and, and that's just not the biblical picture, is it? When you take your will, you connect it to our heart. Jeremiah 17 verse 9, you know this, the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately wicked or desperately sick. And so it's a sick heart is what, in, is, what is steering the ship of a natural man, of an unbelieving man. A sick heart is what determines every decision that, that is the sinful nature of that mankind is born with. They're born with a heart staring them towards sin. And so we've seen, so we're looking, just to remind you, we're looking at the depth of original sin, and we've seen that we have a sinful nature. We've seen that we have a sinful heart. The Bible even speaks of it being evil. We've seen that our will is corrupt, but we still need to go one step deeper. We still need to go deeper. We need to see that the next level of original sin, it says, how do I say this? I want you to know that the next level is that our will is in bondage to sin. It's enslaved to sin. And so in Romans 6 verse 17, it just states this as a fact. And so in verse 17, it says, but thanks be to God. And this is believers looking back to what they once were. It says, but thanks be to God that though you were, and it just uses the term, slaves of sin. And in verse 20, it repeats it. It says it again. And so we were slaves of sin. And I want to give you an illustration because, like I said, I want you to, I want you to feel it. You know, sometimes we can, we can learn how to do something in our mind, but it's better to have, you know, the fine motor skills to, like when you're playing sport, you feel the action rather than just knowing it in your mind. And there's an illustration I want to give you, but I've got to tell you, I think at, it might be at uh, the Bible college that Matthew taught at. I think this is the case. I think they told some of the students never to give this illustration. And so I want to give that illustration, but apparently... <laughs> and now you're all listening because you're all sinners and your ears are pricking up? Or you <laughs> said, don't, don't, don't tell the illustration. But I think because it's so common, and I have heard one of, the, one of the traveling pastors we've had come and use it, but it's a good illustration, and so maybe you've heard it. But the, um, the picture is, it's like, how, how, how do you kill a wolf in Alaska? So imagine a snow-covered country, and there's wolves. I've got people laughing at me. They've obviously heard it. And anyway, so they take this knife, razor-sharp edges, they dip it in blood, and then they put it in the freezer, and it freezes over. They dip it in blood again. They freeze it, and eventually you build up this layer of frozen blood on this razor-sharp blade, and they go and put it in the snow, and they drop it down there and push the handle in so that this, this ice block of blood is sticking up, and the wolf, the wolf comes along in the night, and he starts to lick it, and, it, and he just the wolf loves the taste of the blood. It's just like humans to sin. We drink iniquity like water, and wolves love blood in the same way. So there's just this attraction. They come to it. They start licking it. They lick it, and eventually it gets down to that sharp blade hidden beneath the surface, and they lick it, and they cut their tongue, and they, they feel a bit of a sting. And I think we do that in our life. We, we, we dabble with sin. We get a bit of a sting. But do you know what? There's more blood coming out of your tongue and the wolf loves sin and they just keep going. They keep licking and they cut their tongue up more and then more blood's coming out. And do you know what? There's just this addiction to blood that there's just such a strong connection that, you know what? The person that wanted to catch that wolf or kill the wolf, they just walk back in the morning and there's a dead wolf, a pool of blood, lying next to a sharp knife. They couldn't pull themselves away from it. It couldn't, even though it was killing itself. It couldn't pull itself away from it. It had such a great love of blood. And I think that is the picture, the best illustration, even if I'm not allowed to use it, of, of human nature and our, the control that sin has over an unbelieving person. And we know this when we think about people we know in our lives. They just cannot pull themselves away from sin. And so... <coughs> So that's the picture of the corrupt human nature that I want you to see. And, and it's because of our sick hearts and our love of sin that we, we just can't escape, that we find ourselves trapped. That's where the language of you were bound in sin. You were, it even goes as far as saying you were dead in sin. like You just cannot, of your own, get out of that way. You, you, don't, need, you don't need a change of decision. You need something that changes the very inside of you that causes you to not love it. That's, so what, what, what we start to see is the cure for an unregenerate person is a strong and powerful change of nature. That's what we need. But in 2 Peter 2, 219, and again, I just want Scripture to be in, in, in front of you. Second Peter 2, verse 19, it speaks of slaves of corruption. And it says, For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved and in Acts chapter 8 verse 21 and it's it just it says for the it says for your heart is not right before God so again it's connecting your heart and then in verse 23 it says for i see that you are in the bondage of iniquity and so I, I hope i hope you can that gives you a an understanding of the biblical language the biblical picture of of human nature it doesn't at all describe someone that has a free will does it it describes someone that is in bondage to sin. And so that's my second point. That's the that's the depth of original sin. It goes down deep. It gets its claws in. So man is born with a sinful nature, with a sinful heart, with a corrupt will, with a will that is in bondage to sin, so much so that it becomes a slave of sin. And in a word, if you take that whole second point and sum up the depth of original sin, we could say that mankind is, this is the word, unable to come to God. He is unable that's the position that mankind is born in <clears throat> and so this brings us to the third point and so the third point is the dilemma of original sin <coughs> excuse me the dilemma so the problem so this this brings a problem to us and it's at this point that the opponents of the biblical view they are, they are just itching to raise an objection they're just they just you know when someone wants to speak you can see it eh. They just the opponents of this view. They say, "Aha! They say I've got you. You just said that man is unable. You said the word. You said man is unable to come to God by his own will. And so they say, now we have you in checkmate. You've just outwardly said what you believe, and full of confidence, they would say, let say, answer this: If a man is unable, how can anyone ever respond to the gospel? Good question, isn't it? How can anyone, if they're unable, respond to the gospel? And they might say nobody can ever. Um, be saved because they're all unable. Like what a stupid picture of of sinful mankind that people are unable. How could you how could you read a Bible and think that? And secondly, how can it be sincere for God to offer the gospel to people who are unable to come to Him? It would just be the most. And, and do you see how ridiculous it can seem to say that mankind is unable? But just listen to what they're arguing. This is the argument we're saying: mankind is unable. And what they're trying to argue for is they're trying to say, man must be able. Do you hear that? Man must be able to come to God. And this is where, as mature Christians, calmly and lovingly we can explain, you know, may I, may I have a moment to object to these, you know, to reply to your objections? You know, like maybe we could say, I think you've played your, your checkmate or you played your cards a little too early. And it's, it's actually you that's in a, in a spot of bother now that you've spoken and argued that way. And understanding the bondage of the will and sin, I've only done what the Apostle Paul has done in Romans 11, and he speaks of shutting up all men to disobedience, like shutting them up to disobedience so that he may show mercy. And so we could say, yes, I do acknowledge I have left man in a position where his own strength and works cannot save him Like, we could just plainly acknowledge. We have said he is unable to come to God. We've said he cannot do it by himself. But we would contend that there is still one thing that can save a sinner. And what is it? It's the grace of God. There's no works left in it. There's only the grace of God. And so we could say to someone that raises these objections, you're arguing that man must be able... You're arguing for human works. And so we argue on the side of grace. Do you you see what just happened? Like to hold that view places you on the wrong side of the continental divide of theology. And to hold that view and to maintain a consistent way of thinking, they have forgotten the fall and they've denied the doctrine of original sin. And so that's, that's the train of thinking that it gets to. They're arguing, man, must be able... You know, Luther would say they've left an island of works. They're just trying to smuggle a little bit in the back door of the gospel. But I, can, I really do hope you can understand that. To argue, the Bible as the Bible does, for the complete helplessness of fallen sinners to save themselves only leaves room for the grace of God. Because grace must be pure grace. It must be all grace. You put a little bit of works in there and you've ruined and corrupted the gospel. We don't find a balance in this situation. Of a little bit of works and a little bit of grace it's got to be pure grace and so not even the slightest works come into the true gospel and so that brings us to our last point and the last point is the deliverance from original sin and so if you can look we're doing really good for time by the way eh? we're up to our last point <laughs> better warm those kettles up anyway the deliverance from original sin. So if you look back in your Bible at Romans chapter 5 verse 12 where we started, I want to draw your attention to something else in there. The verse we're looking at, it says, therefore just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men. And so that's that's the doctrine that we built. From one man, sin came and spread into the world. That's the doctrine of original sin. So I hope you've learned that. So mankind was imputed both with the guilt and with a sinful nature from Adam. That's, that's the doctrine in verse 12. And it is un- hard to understand, and it does sound really unfair. But to help you understand it, I think the best way is to see that there's more than one imputation in the Bible. There's two more. There's two more imputations. And they're not as hard as that first one. They actually take us the other direction. One will restore us back to the position almost as where Adam was, and the next one launches us into heaven. So it's, we go down one step and then two steps up. So if you look at verse 18, it says, uh, So then, as through one transgression, through one sin, there resulted condemnation to all men, that's Adam and the sin coming from him, even so through one act of righteousness, here's a change, isn't it? This is the opposite. Through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. We're like, oh, that's interesting. Verse 19, for as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's the negative effect of Adam's fall. And then it says, even so through the obedience of the one, which is referring to the one Christ Jesus, the many will be made righteous. And so if you're still thinking that the doctrine of original sin isn't fair and it can't be right, that we can't be held, we can't be guilty for what somebody else did, Well, I want you to know that I think you actually do like the doctrine of federal headship, and I think you do like the the idea of imputation, because when it comes to our salvation, so we had our fall into sin, but when we start thinking about our salvation, Christ is our federal head. He is our representative. So one plunged us into sin, the other one pulls us back up out of it, and so he represents us. And so this this is good imputation. We want this. And so do you like the sound of Jesus being counted guilty for the sins that we commit? I like that one. He's, he's, our sin and our guilt gets taken from us and put on him. And he dies. On, I like that imputation. I like that federal representative head. And so, um, and in verse 14, I think we skipped over it, but in Romans 5 verse 14, it says this. It says that Adam is a type of him who was to come. So the way that he plunged us into sin is is a type, and it points us to Christ, who is a type of how in the same manner he saves us. And so when he died on the cross to pay the penal sanctions for breaking God's law, it wasn't his sin he was being punished for, our sin was imputed to him. He paid our penalty for breaking God's law. When he lived a life of perfect obedience that was acceptable to God, his righteousness, his perfect life was imputed to us so that we could be treated as if we had kept God's law perfectly. And so if you're tempted to think that the objections raised by Pelagius are good ones, keep in mind the salvation that really is. Salvation is at stake if we lose these doctrines of federal headship and imputation. If we lose if we lose those key concepts, that representative headship and that idea of imputation, do you know what would be? We'd be on our own, and we would have only our free will and our good works to earn our way to heaven. That's where we'd be left if we deny these doctrines. And so we drop them at the fall at our peril because we need to pick them up again when we think of our salvation. And so they're just, they're just critical gospel Truths that we need to understand. And so, to conclude, there are only two religions in the world: one is by divine grace, and the other is by human achievement. And we have seen that this key verse, Romans five twelve, is like the tip of that mountain range that separates the two views. And and how you decide that which way you, if you believe me, you head on one side. If you if you believe the word of God more specifically, and if you deny that truth you're heading down the other direction. And so on the one side, all the works-based systems of salvation run down into the end up in the ocean of works. And on the other side, gospel truth flows down through the high reaches of the doctrine of original sin, and then it flows down through the mighty rivers of federal headship and imputation, and it ends in the ocean of grace, and that's the outcome. And so I'll just, I'll just pray, and we'll finish up. So Heavenly Father, we... We thank you for representing us. Lord, we are unable, and would you work in us, both to will and to do for your good pleasure.